and take your Bible and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I want to bring a sermon to you today from James 4 entitled, Deadly Desires. Deadly Desires. We as a nation must come to grips with the fact that we have moved into an era of post-Christian society. We're not the first nation to do this. We follow a long train of nations, um, not the least of which are our Western European cousins, who 50 years ago moved into this era, and now we have followed. Our nation has moved into an era of resistance to the true gospel. That resistance comes from without and from within. From outside the church, where you might expect it, We see a new atheism rising and a scholarly and academic pursuit of knowledge without God or in the denial of God. But within the church, we see many false gospels being preached. Not the least of which is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Which, this week, it dawned on me, I believe I'm right on this, I believe, drives the abortion numbers inside the church. When you replace the biblical gospel with the belief that God has promised us prosperity in this life, one of the great encumbrances to great prosperity in the world's eyes and sadly in the church's eyes are children, especially children when we're young or unmarried. So don't ever believe the lie that false gospels don't hurt or harm. They do that eternally and they do it immediately. Our nation is suffering from a culture of death. And mainstream America, though the number is slightly improved, still embraces this death. The numbers are pretty start. 41% of Americans now identify as pro-choice. That number is down. It's at an all-time low in 2013. Less people than ever since 73 identified as pro-choice. 52% of Americans believe abortion should be legal in some cases, in some pregnancies. 52%. Uh, 25% believe that it should be legal in all cases. That it is preferred over birth for many of these 25%. 20% believe in our nation that abortion should never be an option. Not legally. 20%. The numbers are startling. Basically, let me remove something for you that disguises the sin involved here. This label pro-choice. Don't ever play with words. They have a meaning. It's like calling an adultery affair. Affair gives it a nice, appealing connotation. Like calling drunkards alcoholics. That makes it a syndrome or sickness. Calling someone pro-choice when what they really are is pro-abortion is covering a sin. It's just making it easier for us to stomach. And further, 
These 41% of Americans are saying, I believe it is right or at least acceptable to murder innocent, voiceless babies in some cases. We don't like that, do we? Our, our bodies and our minds, just as humans, forget Christian, just as humans, turn, our stomachs churn at the thought that the statistic that Michelle shared with us, nine times the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust in Germany. Nine times, over nine times that number. The most aggressive numbers of the Stalin regime, the people that he killed in his own nation, the number sits, the most aggressive numbers sit at about 50 million. That means we have passed in our onslaught against innocent, voiceless babies. We have surpassed now the most wicked and the most repressive government regime to ever grace the planet. Joseph Stalin killed about 50 million of his own people and we have now slaughtered over 56 million. He did it illegally because he took over a government. We have done it legally. The people in communist Russia under his regime could rightfully say we don't stand guilty of these deaths because they opposed him. What can be said of the citizens of the United States? We have, of our own free will, chosen this path. The numbers are startling. The idea of a post-Christian world is upon us. In the United States... Rough estimate, 3,322 abortions occur every day. Every time you wake up and then go back to sleep, that's how many babies have been murdered. And that's just the numbers. If you talk to doctors inside OBGYN practice, they will tell you that's just the numbers that get reported. There are many abortions that occur every day. They go unreported because they fall outside the lines of the legal laws of their state. They're written down as something else, in other words. I would assume that this number is low. And I would assume that we all need to think deeply today about our role. No matter how minor it may be. Because the point today is not to point our finger at liberals, or obstetricians, or pro-choice people, but to point the finger at me. And to say, I, have I done all that can be rightly done to bring an end to this horrific practice? Friday afternoon in my office because it's safe in my office there's no windows no way anyone can see me 
after studying for this sermon all week, finally it just kind of came to a climax and the weight of, of responsibility fell on me. And my heart broke. I've not spent one night in jail. I've not spent one day standing on the steps of a courthouse since I was a little child. Have I done all that's legally acceptable for me as a Christian citizen and a pastor inside this nation? Now, I, I just want to tell you, since I was pretty strong at the introduction here, I want to be strong towards people in my role in life as pastors. Pastors need to wake up from our slumber. The Protestant pastors in the nation of Germany turned a blind eye to the murder of their own citizens. Many times the concentration Local concentration camps were inside homes within a stone's throw of the church. And they knew what was happening. But they didn't think they had any power to stand up against it. So they just stayed quiet. And I hope that by the end of the day we see there is a power that is much greater than the power that brings forth these deaths. And it is worth going to jail over. It's worth it. James chapter 4, verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and, you do, and do not have, so you murder. You covet. And cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy. Of God, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Abortion is not the only issue, but it is a large issue in our culture. This is also... A, a day to celebrate the lives of the aged and the infirmed. Those who don't bring value to the table 
in worldly eyes. They aren't producing anything of any value in some people's minds. Our nation is consumed with a spirit of personal destruction. It can be seen in the drug culture. It can be seen in the no-holds-barred openness of sexual sin. Our culture is caught up in a spirit of self-destruction. So I just want to ask two questions and try to answer them from our text. Why is this happening? And secondly, what can we do about it? Well, the first thing I think we need to see is that we are driven to murder by our selfish desires and passions. We are driven to murder. I know it probably caught your eye, didn't it, in the text. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Surely he's speaking in hyperbole. Surely he's talking about something in the extreme to bring our attention to the less extreme actions in our life. No. I actually think he's warning these people that their desires will lead them to violence and to murder. Sinful desires will lead to killing and murdering. In uh, the first verse, we see that the culture, and we, we can see that the culture of death that I've described rises out of the hedonistic passions that are inside of us all. Look at verse one, second part of the verse. Is, is it not this that your passions, that word hedony, it's the word we get hedonism from, or the pursuit of pleasure? It's never used in the positive ever in the scriptures. The Greek term here is only negative. Because you could say, well, we have good desires, you know, but that's not what James is talking about. James is talking about pleasure in a negative sense. Now, it may be that the pleasure was a positive thing that has been overindulged, but it's sinful at this point. Is it not your own hedonistic desires that drive you to fight, to quarrel, to murder? We see these hedonistic desires in our own culture, in our own hearts, in our own minds. I want to identify just some of them. I'm just going to touch the ice, top of the iceberg here. The desire for sex. The desire for sex and the misuse of sex in our society. It is impossible to watch a 30-minute TV show in our culture that doesn't drive us to the desire for sex at all costs with anyone. That doesn't reprimand us because we're prudish because we think sex belongs between a man and a woman in a marital covenant only. Not to those not married or not to those outside their marriage bond. We're, we're, we're made... It's, it's behind the scenes in commercials every time they come on. Is this mocking of the value of the biblical sex ethic. That sex belongs to a man and a woman inside their marriage bond and only there. It, it's not overt. They don't just come right out and say it, do they? But it's behind. It's the subplot behind all of the sensuality in entertainment. Look what you're missing out on. Look what you should be involved in. Look how much better your life could be if you just give in to the natural desires. 
not just this, but also the desire for self-image. To maintain an image to the outside world, whether it's true or not, that we are meeting the standard, whatever the standard is, in whatever area. Whether it be the cars we drive, the houses we live in, the clothes we wear, the food we eat or don't eat. It's all about our image and maintaining an image in front of everyone else. The hedonistic pursuit of things. Education. Our society drives after the pleasure of a degree. We don't go get degrees any longer because we need them. We just get degrees because it makes us feel good. Feel accomplished. We've jumped through the hoop. Or the society around us has told us that's what's expected of you. Is a higher degree. Not just a higher degree, but we, as Piper famously says, we take gold when copper would do. I mean this in terms of education. It's, it's applicable in everything in life. But just think of it this way. You have the choice to go get a really good, solid education at a state college or at, for your particular major. There's nothing prestigious about going to a more expensive school except that that's just what you want so you can tell everybody that's where you graduated from. And you'll pursue that at the levels of debt that would just make a shudder, right? It's hedonistic. This is good. This is all I need. This is maybe even better, but I want this name in front of me or behind me, so I'm going to pursue it, no matter what it costs. No matter what it costs, my family or my friends or me or my future in terms of children. We now see people delaying marriage and delaying childbirthing based on that one thing. That they are so far in debt. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt sometimes. Even at state colleges we see them coming out in the $100,000 debt range. And so they can't have children until they're in their 30s. This hedonistic pursuit of an image. This hedonistic pursuit of education. For nothing more than that. Career advancement. I'm going to be the best. It goes into, I'm going to get ahead of everybody else. At all costs. Being the best is one thing. Doing your very best is one thing. But, but I'm going to step on everybody I can to advance in my field is another. I think James would put it in this hedonistic desire that destroys Travel and leisure. I know it sounds crazy. But there are actually people aborting children that when asked or pressed about it, it was because children would encumber their travel plans. My husband and I were going on our first anniversary cruise, and if we have a baby, we can't go, so let's kill the baby and go on the cruise. And some would say, well, we would adopt children. But, I mean, you know, that's $30,000. But they won't think anything about going to Disney for that, nearly that price. Won't think a thing about it. Because they got a photo album to go with their experience. Hedonism, the very root. Money, 
I don't even know we need to expand on that, right? Just itself, money. The pursuit of money at all costs. Body image and figure image. If I have this baby, what will it do to my body? Or, if my wife goes through this pregnancy, what will she look like? The culture of death rises from a hedonistic passion to have what we want, no matter the cost. Not even the cost of a life. Don't let anything stand in the way of your desire. James says, that's what causes, notice he says, War within us. Turmoil. It's those hedonistic passions. Secondly, in this section, we see that desire leads to jealousy, leads to covetousness, leads to violence. Look at verse 2. It's the natural progression. It's the way he writes it. There's some debate about how this should be in. You know, translated, but I, I agree with the NASB and the RSV and the ESV. You desire and don't have, so you murder. You quarrel and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So what he's saying is, is that these desires, these basic desires that we have perverted into pursuit at all costs, Drive us to look at others and say, I want what they have. And that wanting what they have turns from jealousy, which is bad, to covetousness, which can lead to murder. Did you know people kill each other over things? The possession of things, wanting things, happens every day. Desires, unmet, unkept, natural desires grow. And when they grow, they drive us to violence. Secondly, in this passage, we see we have become friends with the world. And so we are enemies of God. James says, beginning in verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, he calls them adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you desire to be a friend of the world, you are desiring to be an enemy of God. That's what James says. Adulterous people ask for more self-consuming pleasures. Adulterous people, adulterous people want more things for themselves. One way to know if you're in danger of sliding into the adulterous category spiritually is to look at your prayer life and say, what do I spend the majority of my time praying about? Do I ask God for things for me and my family for the majority? Or am I asking for outward blessing on others, spiritual harvest in the lives of my friends, what is my prayer life consumed with? Sometimes we laugh at children when they pray and ask, especially around Christmas time, for certain presents. Right? But, but grown-ups are no different. 
we often disguise it a little better. They're just more honest. But we disguise it with, God, if you would just give me this, it would help my children out. Or my wife, or you fill in the blank. Adulterous people ask for things to self-consume. They want their own pleasures met. Adulterous people make themselves enemies of God by being friendly with the world. Now, here our, our text makes plain that you can't be one or the other. You can't be both. You're either a friend of the world or a friend of God. The two are at, at odds with one another completely. Jesus said it. This is the younger brother of Jesus. He says it, you're either friends with the world or friends with God. His brother, Jesus, our Lord, said it this way. You can serve God or you can serve money, but you can't have two masters. One or the other will be your master. Finally, in this point, we see that adulterous people blaspheme God by abusing the life that He has given them. Verse 5. This was probably the most... um, eye-opening verse for me in the study. New. I've studied this passage. I've used it in counseling for years. And this verse opened up in a new way to me as I studied it this week. Look what it says. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? Now, often I've taken that to mean the Spirit of God, which He placed in us at conversion. And so He's placed it there and He's yearning over the transformation that should be coming from that spirit being inside of us. But this week is like the light came on. That's not what I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying he put the breath of life in you. And he yearns jealously over the use of that life. Whether you will use it to gain your own pleasures or whether you will use it to his glory. It was at this point, making this point in my heart that I think brought me to that breaking point Friday. That depressing moment where I realized, what am I using my life for? God has entrusted me with a life. He has entrusted you with a life. He yearns jealously. In other words, He is intent on seeing that you steward that life For His glory. Not for any other purpose. And one of the reasons it's not being used or maximized for His glory is my own desires for my own selfishness. See, James in the text, what I think keyed it for me or put it together for me is he's comparing the covetousness of the people with the jealousy of God. People are covetous for their own pleasures. God is jealous for His own glory. That's why you are an enemy of God if you seek your own pleasure outside of Him. Because if you seek your pleasures outside of Him, you are denying Him the right that He has over your life to gain the maximum glory from it. So we serve a jealous God who will share His glory with no one and nothing. Not the American dream. Not the pursuit of a good education. 
Not the image that we so much desire, not the money that we want in our bank account, not the sex that we want on end with whoever we want it with. God won't share His glory with anything or anyone. He yearns jealously over the Spirit which He has given you. Simple translation, He's taking account of whether you're using what He has given you for His purpose or not. God looks at us and says that basically we are blasphemous when we don't use. So, you're here and you're saved. This is true for you. God is looking at your life. He has given it to you to steward, to be a good, responsible caretaker over the life He's entrusted to you, Christian. Use it for His glory. Lost man and woman, you're sitting in the pew and you say, well, I'm off the hook, I'm not a Christian. No. That's where the mistake was in my previous understanding of this verse. It would have only had connotation or effect for Christians. No. James is saying no. If you're a lost person sitting in these pews, God yearns jealously over the fact that He has given you life. And you've used that life for your own gain. And you have denied Him. Therefore, you're guilty of blasphemy. Just sitting in the pew drawing another breath is blasphemous to God. Just the fact that your heart is beating right now and you're outside of Christ is worthy of hell. It's what you deserve, lost person. Don't ever think you're going to get a pass from God under any circumstance, because He has made you, created you for one overarching reason. It is to bring glory to His name. That can only be done in submission to Christ. Outside of Christ, everything you do, every breath you breathe, every thought you have is sin. And He yearns jealously over the fact that you are abusing the life He has given you. So I would say to you as a lost person, come to Jesus now. You're only mounting debt on top of debt that you cannot pay. Come to Jesus. The beauty of where we're headed in this sermon is there's an answer. Why are we where we are? Because of our desires. Because we are hedonistic at our very core. We want what we want when we want it. And we don't care if we blaspheme God to get it. But there is a solution. What do we do about this problem? Well, Thank God He's already done it. We have been given grace from God in the Gospel. Verse 5, the fact that He yearns over you as a human because He's given you life and you're not worshiping Him in that life. Look at verse 6. I don't know why, I, I don't know why this is, but isn't it true that most of the time, Eric, when we find these kinds of phrases, it follows the conjunction, but... Some of the greatest lines in all the Bible follow this one word, but. He yearns jealously over the life that He's entrusted you with. That's a scary thought. That should strike you at your very core and make you stand up and wail and moan because you are outside of Christ or because you're in Christ and you're playing games with the world. But listen, verse 6, but He gives more grace.
You were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, with the love with which He loved us. Listen, the solution to the abortion issue, to the, the, the infanticide that we are suffering under, the, the, the killing of elderly people because their life doesn't have value to us, the destruction of teens' lives by a culture that says, get all of these things at all costs. The, the reality is the answer is one. God's grace is sufficient to cover all our sin. But He gives more grace. The fact that you sit alive in this pew today, and I stand alive behind this sacred desk preaching this sacred word, the only reason we're alive is because He's gracious. If I was left to what I deserved, I would reap hell now. But God poured out grace. He had more grace. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That's the statement of Scripture. God calls to us, His call to us is to humble ourselves. The grace is there in Christ made available. He made it available at the cost of His own Son. He took the life of His own Son. His Son gave up His own life to solve the problem of sin. For all those who are in Him, the problem is solved. You had a debt you could not pay. And your right deserved, what you deserved, what you rightfully deserved was to go to hell. But God gave more grace in the form of Christ. He came in the flesh, humbled Himself, put Himself in the form of a human servant, even until the death of a cruel cross. And then He was raised up on the third day. What that resurrection says is the penalty is sufficiently paid. It's kaput. It's over. God spoke acceptance in the resurrection. He spoke condemnation in the cross. And resurrection is acceptance. He condemned us, our sins, in Christ. And Christ suffered on on the cross the weight and the burden and the penalty of our sin. And for three days... His body lay dead, and on the third day, God spoke the greatest words of all of eternity with the resurrection. And that is, He raised, by the power of God, He raised Him from the dead. Which is to say, I am satisfied. The penalty has been paid. If you are in my Son, you are no longer guilty. So you once were adulterous, spending everything God gave you on your own desires, and now Jesus has come and taken those sinful desires and died for them and much more been raised from the dead so that now you can desire and treasure Him above all things through the power of God. But God gave more grace. He gives more grace. The answer, the solution is the same for all of our ills and all of our sins and all of our rebellion and all of our... all of our... Uh, blasphemous actions, God says, my son's offer is sufficient. So he calls on us then to humble ourselves. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
some of us need to come to the full recollection that we are so prideful, we will willingly go to hell for the sake of our pride. Because rather than admit and confess and repent of our sin, we'd rather hang on to our sin and deny Christ. God resists you in that state, but He draws near to you when you humbly confess that you have no solution on your own. God's grace allows us to resist the devil. God's grace is sufficient to humble us and bring us into Christ's salvation. And then it's sufficient to help us resist the devil. Submit yourself to God and resist the devil. You don't resist the devil by willpower. Not for very long anyway. He will win. You don't beat your hedonistic desires, your pleasurous desires, your blasphemous desires. You don't beat them by simply gritting your teeth and saying, I can do it. You defeat them by running to Christ. The grace of God then helps you to resist the devil. He gives you the way of escape. He brings you from temptation and failure to acceptance. And then through acceptance to resist the allure of sin. God's grace allows us to repent. So we resist the devil. Verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's those who have a mind towards the world and towards God. Be wretched and mourn and weep. God's grace is what allows us to do this. This is not a list of to-dos. This is a list that is contained in the grace of God. You can only do this if God graciously grants it. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. God's grace brings us from despair to exaltation. God's grace not only saves us from our sin, but establishes us in Christ in the heavenly places. The choice is not, I can live in my sin and die and go to hell, or I can submit to Christ and He'll forgive my sins, and then i got to work real hard so that He will keep accepting me. The choice is, I can live in my sins and die in my sins and go to hell, or I can live in my sins, humbly submit to Christ's reign and rule in my life, and at that moment I'm then seated with Christ in the heavenly places, exalted. To where Christ is positionally and experientially then that flows back to me in sanctifying grace to be able to resist the devil and come closer to God in relationship and live out practically the gospel in our everyday life that's not something God's telling us to do on our own that's not a thunder of law from the throne that's a thunder of grace glorious grace to us God exalts us exalts us through being humbled. Now, what's the application? As we move to a close, let me give some specific applications. There could be many, but let me give you three specific. First of all, grace fellowship. We must repent of our sinful passions, our wrong thoughts about life, and our indifference to the culture of death. We need to repent of that. It's not enough to simply give some budgeted money 
and have one Sunday a year where we focus on the issue. We need to repent that this issue is not an issue for us every day. Every day. That it doesn't break us and break our hearts that many are suffering this death. Secondly, we need to support some things. First of all, and, and I cheated. I couldn't get them all in three applications, so I'm going to give you the second one with several subsets. All right? First of all, Grace Fellowship, we can apply this sermon by supporting the cause of adoption. Many of you do that. We do that through Micah's Hope. Many of you do that on your own. Many of you are contemplating or have already adopted little ones into your home. We must not only support adoption, but we must support the care and counsel that's, that needs to be made available for young parents who have ha made the choice of life but now need help beyond the birth. We need to support, because of the facts that we've seen today in the call of James, we need to support aftercare for moms who have made the decision to abort their children and now live with the misery every day. I read the accounts of several women. One of them in particular moved me. She was a, a young mother who aborted her child um, and years later was giving a testimony. She had become a Christian. She was giving a testimony that every time she experienced anything in life anything in life that was joyful anything in life that was exciting anything in life that was beautiful every time what she called the ghost of my child was there what she meant by that was she gave the example of my family being at the beach and seeing the moon glittering off the waves as they come in to the shore and she said while we're there and our other children are playing and I'm in Christ at this point but I couldn't help but the ghost of my child my little one waving at me every time I tried to enjoy anything I dealt with the pain of a choice I made years ago we need to be passionate, not just about little ones being born, but about helping those who've made a choice to abort, and now they're having to live with that every day. We need to reach out and care for those in the medical profession who have to deal with the fact that they've been a part of this. Maybe in the past, before coming to Christ, or even after coming to Christ, just the pressure of the industry pushed them. And they gave in. And they took part. Maybe they unwittingly took a part. That happens too. And we need to care enough about those doctors and nurses and support staff that to see their pain and love them. The Good Samaritan parable is our God, is it not? He saw his neighbor in need and he helped him at great cost to himself. It might cost you a lot to go in public and have a meal with someone in our community who is a known um, supporter of abortion. 
It might cost you a lot. It might cost you a lot to be seen with some of the moms who've made this choice. But isn't it worth it? Isn't it worth it to have the opportunity to minister the love of the gospel to this broken heart and bind up the wounds of the hurting and the broken? We need to show our support for Save a Life and Lifeline Children's Services. And, and I'm thankful that we do that and we can increase that support. More of us need to be volunteering at Save a Life. More of us need to be giving our personal money. More of us need to be taking part in Lifeline Children's Services, another organization in Alabama that is doing great things for mothers who are facing the birth of children that maybe were unplanned on their part. One of the things we're doing as a church is we're having a, a locally, we're having a, um, we're hosting a, a lunch for all of the DHR social workers. We're bringing them here. We're going to feed them and we're going to thank them for doing something that's very thankless. Caring for those in need in our society, the least and, and, and the most disadvantaged. And many oftentimes. And we're praying that that will open up the door for Lifeline to come in here and work with DHR to put children in Christian homes. Every foster child in a Christian home. There are about, there are a little less than 4,000 foster children in Alabama. Wouldn't it be great if all 4,000 of them found Christian homes that loved them and supported them? And so we're going to continue that with the help of Redeemer and Aniston Bible Church and Iron City Baptist Church and so many others are joining this to try to love those who are serving families in need and women in need and children in need. And we're going to try to build a relationship so we can then hopefully raise awareness of, of the need of foster parents and put those children in Christian homes. Finally, and most importantly, and foundationally to all of these other things, we need to continue to preach the biblical gospel. We need to continue to live lives in accordance with that gospel. If we jettison, push aside the gospel in our pursuit to help the unborn, we will in turn hurt them. I said earlier, some of us are quiet on this issue because we think it's too big, too powerful. There's nothing to overcome it. I'm going to tell you, there's one thing, one power greater than the culture of death. And that is the power of the gospel of God. That's it. No political power, no political movement will ever eradicate this from our society. Only the gospel will do that. And so we need to continue to preach and live a biblical gospel. These are the applications. I pray that as you think about this, not just today, but in the days to come, that you will become active in the fight for life. At both ends of the spectrum and all points in between, you will fight for life.